This episode of New Politics was released on the 18th of February, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, another week of Parliament in Canberra and the anniversary of the apology to the stolen generations, a by-election in Melbourne as a political test for Peter Dutton and for Anthony Albanese, and Sportsbet makes a donation to a federal politician who's responsible for online gambling, yet there's nothing illegal about this. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. My heart is like coffee, black and bitter. And for our Patreon subscribers, we've got a bonus episode coming out this week. Should Philip Lowe at the Reserve Bank be sacked or not? That is the question. And we'll send out the link to you when it does become available. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. But whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au. And all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. There was another session of Parliament this week and there's been a series of Senate Estimate Committee hearings. We found out that the most senior public servant in Home Affairs failed to notify the government about a lapse of a major contract for the offshore immigration detention centres in Nauru. There were debates about who's to blame for the national energy market. And we also found out that the federal government has spent $7.6 million to prosecute whistleblowers, and most of that was expended by the previous coalition government. And although the Labor government did drop the cases against Bernard Caleri and Witness K, the cases against David McBride and Richard Boyle are still continuing and they need to stop. But the highlight of the week was the commemoration of the 15th anniversary of the National Apology to the Stolen Generations, when the Prime Minister at the time, Kevin Rudd, said this. We reflect on their past mistreatment. We reflect in particular on the mistreatment of those who were stolen generations. This blemished chapter in our national history. The time has now come for the nation to turn a new page a new page in Australia's history by righting the wrongs of the past and so moving forward with confidence to the future. We apologise for the laws and policies of successive parliaments and governments that have inflicted profound grief, suffering and loss on these our fellow Australians. We apologise especially for the removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families, their communities and their country for the pain, suffering and hurt of these stolen generations, their descendants and for their families left behind, we say sorry. To the mothers and the fathers, the brothers and the sisters, for the breaking up of families and communities, we say sorry. And for the indignity and degradation thus inflicted on a proud people and a proud culture, we say sorry. They were simple words, and it was a relief after 11 years of intransigence from the previous Prime Minister, John Howard, who claimed that the current generation couldn't be blamed for the sins of the past, that an apology would open up the federal government to billions of dollars of compensation. All of that didn't happen. No one blamed the current generation for the sins of the past. Not one dollar was paid in compensation for the apology made by Kevin Rudd. And something asked for by the stolen generations for a long, long time was made, and the sky didn't fall in. Now, David, sometimes the best acts by governments are the simple things and the things that don't cost anything at all. 
I think symbolically it was huge. My understanding from speaking to Indigenous people and but also from what was written and said was that it was a healing act from the, the federal government. And one thing that John Howard failed to consider was that certainly what previous generations did probably shouldn't be put onto the current generation. But the Australian Parliament is a constant since 1901, and Kevin Rudd, as a representative of that government at the time, was able to speak on behalf of everyone who had represented that seat. That may have been what got John Howard's go to course, him taking a slightly different view, probably closer to the view of each government is a different entity. But I think if you look at it in terms of as the Parliament being a continuous line, an often contradictory and difficult line, but still a continual line from the Barton government of 1901 through to the Albanese government of 2023. The apology was well justified, must be said well articulated and well spoken. Kevin Rudd is a decent public speaker. And again, the most important thing, the first step in a process of healing, and it's something that can't be taken back. Resources can be redirected and and taken off you, but a genuine heartfelt apology as a first step, and I want to stress this, I, I think there's still a long, long, long way to go. But as a first step, it can't be rescinded, even if in the future Prime Minister Peter Dutton was to rescind it. And I'll be fair, given his recent feelings on the subject, I don't think he would. Well, the arguments that were provided against the apology to the Solon generations at the time, that it wouldn't make any difference, that it was all just empty symbolism, how much will all of this cost? And these were the arguments used by Peter Dutton at the time, and he wasn't the only one bringing up those issues in 2008. And he suggested at the time that the compensation bill from the apology to the Solon generations could be $10 billion, and there's no explanation as to why it would be $10 billion or what the process would be for compensation to be given that would result in that sort of amount. It was just a figure that was plucked out of air for political effect. But fast forward to 2023... It's still the same arguments that are being used against the voice of Parliament by the people who do oppose it. Now, Peter Dutton did apologise for his stance from 2008, saying that he didn't understand the significance of the apology to the stolen generations. And we should give credit to politicians who do apologise for their mistakes or for their actions from the past. But if Peter Dutton is truly sorry for his actions from 2008, well, he'd backtrack on his opposition to the voice of Parliament. He'd stop opposing for the sake of opposing. And hopefully we won't get to a situation where the voice to parliament is defeated when it comes to a referendum. And then in 15 years' time, we get another apology from Peter Dutton for not understanding the significance of the occasion. Now, it's going to be far too late for that. He needs to understand the significance of the occasion right now. The other thing, too, is this political, and it's rife in the Liberal Party at the moment, but Labor also does it. I think I can see indications that the Greens would do it if circumstances were slightly different. But the need to always win and the need to not accept defeat. Of course, smart politicians know when to lose and know when it's worth pushing through. In the words of the great political philosopher Kenny Rogers, you've got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. And Peter Dutton has, and I'm being fair here, decided to at least fold them for short-term gain. And we can question his motives, and we will, (laughs) and we have. (laughs) If Peter Dutton's apology was genuine, that's really good and should be praised. But the man has a history which suggests that more of this has been done through 
political expediency than through any difficult and harsh soul-searching. As usual in these types of things, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm old enough and cynical enough to suspect that I'm not. And there have been questions raised about how the Labor government is going to fund all of its policy proposals, and that includes the proposed Medicare reforms, social housing projects, the boost to infrastructure, and then there's all of those proposed stage three tax cuts that are meant to start in July 2024, and These are the same pressure points coming in from the mainstream media that always come around, and all of this goes around in cycles depending on how bored the media is. But the message is that the Labor government essentially gets this funding from the same place that the Liberal national governments get their funding from or get their money from, and that's from the Reserve Bank of Australia. So my issue isn't so much a question of where is the money coming from because governments always have access to the finances that they need to fund their policies and their projects. My issue with all governments is... What are they spending this money on? So Medicare reform, social housing projects, infrastructure, these are all good things for governments to spend money on. Stage three tax cuts, that's not a good use of federal government money and that's not a spending item, that's foregone revenue. But at this stage, you'd be thinking, well, why would a government want to give high income earners a tax cut, especially from a Labor government? But it's also a question of what the government isn't spending money on. New Start should have been raised a long, long time ago and you'd expect a Labor government to raise this rate, but they haven't. The Labor government is prepared to spend money on social housing, but it's just such a small amount and it needs to do a lot, lot more here. So the issue for me is to look at what the government finance is being spent on, not so much where the money is going to be coming from because those access points have always been there and and will always continue to be there as well. The tax cuts can be repealed. One of the disingenuous things that Paul Keating said with his tax cuts was that they'd be LAW law. And of course, any law can be repealed. Some laws, of course, we don't want repealed. (laughs) Uh, The law prohibiting murder, for example, is probably a good one not to repeal. But wasteful and pointless tax cuts are still something that the government needs to get rid of. It, it doesn't have a good look for a Labor government that is says it's committed to removing inequality. And they now claim that they're absolutely committed to this. Now, the people they're taking the money off can already afford what they're paying. And polls a few years back suggested that many of the people in that bracket were quite happy to not get the tax cuts, that they were, I guess happy is the wrong word, (laughs) because nobody likes paying tax. They didn't feel that the tax cuts there were necessary and that they'd rather see that money go into health, into education, into law enforcement, into infrastructure, into all the things that governments should do, and that really when done well, governments do do very well. So again, keeping the pressure up here on them, we haven't really heard a justification as to why they're going through except that, oh, it's the law. But they've got the numbers to repeal the law. And even in the Senate, I suspect that they'll get the numbers. I've looked at it from many, many angles, and I can't see why the government is staying with it. And if they'd like to tell us why, we'd love to hear from you. Cost of living pressures, and this is an issue that always appears in politics, and it's the perfect political message because it means so many different things to so many different people and none of it is generally good. And the big message to come from the coalition at the moment is why does everything cost more under Labor? Now, again, that's always going to be a very potent political message because it feeds directly into those manufactured tropes about Labor mismanagement and misspending on their finances and 
Generally, prices are never higher or lower under any government. It's always relative to the state of the economy and the supply of goods and services. But anyway, it's a message that works well for the coalition, so that's what they're going to stick with. If cost of living is the big issue that the coalition is suggesting, and I'm not suggesting that it isn't, but if the opposition wants to make a big noise about this, well, Senate estimates is the place where senators can interrogate the government. And we've been criticised a little bit, David, about focusing too much and being a little bit too obsessed with the Liberal Party. And it's understandable for us to do that because there's so much material to work with out there. So today, instead, we'll focus on the National Party. But in Senate estimates, Senators Bridget McKenzie and Matt Canavan, and they're both from the National Party, they have the opportunity to target the government on these costs of living pressures. And given that they do represent regional and rural communities, you'd expect them to ask these questions. But here's what they asked instead. With Australia Day on the 26th, what was the process within the Agriculture Department around staff uh, who sought to not work or work on that day? What's the policy you have, Mr Metcalf, if somebody does live in, say, Tuggeranong? Is there expectation that they'd come to the office at least uh, for some the, of the time? The, uh... Minister, is it your expectation that your department um, officials and uh, the agencies within your purvey will remain apolitical during uh, the voice referendum? Well, I would expect that all public servants in this portfolio would comply with the code of conduct. And the uh, secretary has already indicated there are there's some work being done by the public sector commissioner about around that. And once those guidelines are developed, I'd expect people to comply. But I have to say, we haven't, as you can see, we haven't given a lot of thought because we're pretty focused on helping Australian agriculture. But the other question I just wanted to know about specifically, anyway. Minister, the agencies under your areas of responsibility and their boards. Um, would you ex have the same expectations of the boards of the agencies within? Well, again, I honestly haven't given it any area. thought because I've been completely focused on building the agriculture sector and helping people experiencing natural disasters. Well, maybe, um, Minister, but, when you turn your but, mind to it, but, it on notice. But what I was going to say is that. Again, I would expect there'll be some kind of guidance from whether it be the public sector commissioner or um, the head of PMNC or someone else as to what the appropriate role of board members mm. would be, and then I'd expect people to comply with that. Thank you. And that was Senator Murray Watt answering those questions. Now, good senators can forensically assess policy and put pressure on the government. And if we remember the work of Senators Robert Ray and John Faulkner when Labor was in opposition during the Howard years, and... Admittedly, it's not the be-all and end-all of the work of opposition. They were in opposition for 11 years. But it helped put pressure on the issues of public interest and put them in the spotlight and resulted in better policy. And if you're not in government, this is the least that you can do as a parliamentarian. But these are all squandered opportunities. Like, who really cares if public servants are going to work on Australia Day or Anzac Day or if they're working from home? When you're in opposition, you do need to make sure that every single issue counts. But if you focus on these tiny little issues, it's the bigger issues that get left behind. But still, that's an issue for the National Party to sort out. The bigger issue is what the government is doing, how they're dealing with cost of living issues and how they deal with the media and the opposition that keeps pushing these issues. Yeah, it's always a danger of, a, of any government to be led by what the media is saying and sometimes the media pushes its own agenda and politicians can be a nervous bunch 
ego is a big part of a lot of politicians and fear is a part of a lot of politicians. So if they see what they perceive as bad press, it affronts their ego and they panic. There are always honourable and notable exceptions to this rule. But to swing around a bit, inflation at this point is not being caused by high wages. Wages have in fact stagnated a bit and it's not being caused by higher discretionary spending. It's being caused by massive profits. Another reason not to put in tax cut for a higher owners and a reason to consider things like super profits tax and windfall taxes. We have to make sure that the economy works as best as we can for everybody, not just for wealthy corporations. A whole reform of the tax system needs to be done. Australia's got an extremely complex taxation system. A lot of countries' legislation is less than a book. Australia's, I think, 25 or 27 volumes of law. I think that's where we start. And it was also revealed during the week that the federal government has paid $7.6 million in legal fees to prosecute whistleblowers, and most of this was incurred by the previous government. $5.5 million was spent on the prosecution of Bernard Caleri and Witness K. Those cases were dropped by the Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus, but the case against David McBride, that one has cost $1.8 million so far, and the case against Richard Boyle, that one has cost $233,000 so far. And these two cases are still continuing. And, and this is money just going down the drain. And we've suggested in the past that we can't see what the government's waiting for. There might be some legal technicalities that are coming into this or they're worried about setting up some precedents that might cause legal problems further down the track if other cases do arise. Or they might be wanting to dovetail whistleblower cases into the National Anti-Corruption Commission. Who knows what it is, but these cases need to be drawn to a conclusion urgently. And we've also been asked about what is happening with Julian Assange. And the answer is that we don't actually know. This is a high-level diplomatic issue, as it has been for several years. And about the only thing that the Australian government can do is lobby the US government through their diplomatic channels. The Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, he has suggested that the US government should end its pursuit of Julian Assange and bring this case to a close. And he made that statement in November last year, but that's about the only thing that the government can do. Now, they could allow the US government to set up another Pine Gap in Australia in exchange for the release of Julian Assange, but that's not going to happen. But aside from those sort of trade-offs, the public has to keep pressuring the government and keep applying that pressure until Julian Assange is released. It's one of the more strange cases. Assange has been through the ringer and each time they charge him with something like in Sweden and he was charged with extremely serious crimes in Sweden, he gets off them because in all likelihood he's innocent. Nonetheless, they keep him locked up, unable to behave as a normal free citizen and the Australian government needs to intercede on his behalf and continue to do so. If he'd been a drug dealer caught with 10 kilograms of heroin in Indonesia, the full weight of the Australian diplomatic service would have fallen right behind him. And this is right. Every time you go to Southeast Asia, every form you sign, no matter how innocuous has a caveat, do not attempt to traffic drugs here, we will hang you. But it is right that the Australian government goes in and tries to help its citizens as best as it can. And I don't understand 
really, except I do, except I don't, except I do understand why they aren't trying harder with Assange. Now, again, there could be a lot of high-level, top-secret telephone calls and meetings that we don't know about being done, but I'm not sure that that's the best way to go about it as well. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. be a by-election coming up in the Melbourne seat of Aston and that's been caused by the resignation of former Minister Alan Tudge and it's being labelled as a big test for Peter Dutton but it's also a big test for Anthony Albanese and the federal government. Now we can have endless opinion polls and speculation about public sentiment for the government and for the opposition but the real test in politics comes in when real votes are lodged at the ballot box and that's going to be the case in the Aston by-election. Of course, there's a lot of issues to be taken into account. Aston hasn't been held by the Labor Party since 1990. It's been a safe Liberal seat for most of that time since. An incumbent government hasn't won a seat off an opposition in a by-election since 1921. But the electorate usually votes against the party that caused the by-election in the first place. The Labor government is riding high in the polls. The Liberal National Party isn't. So it's a seat that the Labor Party could win, but equally, it's a seat that the Liberal Party should hold. But in by-elections, a lot of political rules get thrown out the window. The last polling I saw was that Liberal Party were going to retain the seat. Now, polls are pretty meaningless, but 1920 was the last time a government took a seat off the opposition in a by-election. Tudge, of course, was a very toxic member, really a fifth-rater struggling to be a fourth raider and usually most of the time acting like a sixth raider. He should never have been pre-selected into the seat. He should never have got into parliament. He should never have been a minister. This is all very clear. What the Liberal Party would have to do to retain the seat, I think, is to put in a really good candidate. Somebody local who knows the area, who is not another blank neo-lib unemployable who's in politics because there's nothing else they can do but a good, strong local candidate. I wonder, too, if there's a strong independent running, and that could change things. Now, of course, it doesn't really make a difference who wins. Labor get an extra seat, and they've got a comfortable is not quite the word, but they've got a fairly workable majority with the two or three they've got. It can't get much worse for the Liberal Party if they lose it. It's just another seat they don't have. As you said, we're in more of a symbolic. Is Peter Dutton so unpopular that they will defy history? And I guess we should say that even if the Liberal Party win, will that strengthen Peter Dutton's leadership or will it make it no change? Will he get a boost in popularity and regard or not? 
Well, they're also, it might not be too obvious now, but the Liberal Party has already started campaigning for this seat, and that's probably the reason why Peter Dutton apologised for walking out of the apology to the Solon generation during the week, and it's probably difficult for Conservatives to win a seat in Melbourne at the moment if they continue with their hardline rhetoric on almost everything. But it will be a difficult seat for Labor to win for a number of different reasons. Aston was created in 1984, but it was a safe Labor seat up until 1990, and it's been held by the Liberal Party for over 30 years. Alan Tudge initially won the seat by 2% in 2010 and turned it into a safe seat, but in the 2022 federal election, there was a massive swing against him, and it's now held by the Liberal Party by a margin of 2.8%. Alan Tudge barely did anything during that last election campaign. He was virtually invisible. He had all of those problems with the affair that he started with one of his staffers. There were the allegations of sexual harassment. There were all those issues surrounding the robo-debt scandal. But despite all of that, he still managed to win the seat. And this time around, as you mentioned before, David, it's definitely a seat that the Liberal Party needs to retain for the sake of Peter Dutton's leadership and for the renewal of the Liberal Party at this stage of the political cycle. It's going to be fascinating to watch the fallout. One of the big advantages that the seat of Aston has for the Liberal Party is that it doesn't have Alan Tudge. Tudge was not going to win the next election. He was one of the, I'll use the word loosely, minds behind robo-debt, plus his appalling hypocrisy and sexism and inappropriate behaviour would have counted him out. And the Liberal Party in Victoria is pretty toxic at the moment. Now, just going back a little bit in time, we're not going to go back all the way to 1949. I'm just talking about 2020. Anthony Albanese's first election test and his first electoral victory as leader of the opposition, was during the Eden Monero by-election in June 2020. The expectation was that the Labor Party was going to lose that seat. A Labor MP had resigned from the seat, and there's usually a backlash against the party that causes the by-election. It was at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, and Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party were riding high in the polls, but Labor went on to narrowly hold on to that seat. And in hindsight, that's probably where the Labor Party started to claw a pathway back into government. Could it be the same for Peter Dutton and the LNP? And of course, it depends on who is pre-selected for the campaign. And Catherine Burnett-Wake, she's been nominated for the seat and she's a moderate former Liberal Victoria Upper House MP. And there's a few others who have been nominated as well, including Roshana Campbell. And I guess you could say that she's the News Corporation candidate. And Ranjana Srivastava, she's also made a nomination. There's also a strong Labor candidate there as well. That's Mary Doyle. If there's also a strong Teal independent candidate that enters the field as well, it's going to be very difficult to work out who's likely to win. And all we're really after is a good contest between good candidates, and we might end up getting that for a change. But there is a lot riding on this Aston by-election, probably more than most. And if Labor wins a seat, they will end up putting even more pressure on the leadership of Peter Dutton. If the Liberal Party retains a seat with a good moderate candidate, this might give them a template for getting back into office in the near future in the same way that it were for Anthony Albanese and for Labor in Eden Monero back in 2020. But I think when you weigh everything up, the Liberal Party should hang on to this seat. But if they lose it, it will end up being a disaster for them. And I guess too that if it, they win with a moderate candidate, that says a lot about Peter Dutton's leadership. And what I've been saying is that the neoliberal far-right Liberal Party is dead 
and that I've been wanting for a more moderate Liberal Party, one that reflects mainstream Australia's views more accurately. There's a certain way that if you look at it, it won't end well for Peter Dutton because it either gets candidates that aren't him or he loses. So perhaps it's not a test on his leadership at all. Perhaps it's just a part of the essential reform the Liberal Party has to go through to retain relevance. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Political donations have come under the spotlight with revelations that the Minister for Communications, Michelle Rowland, she received $19,000 in two separate donations from Sportsbet in the lead up to the 2022 federal election. And she was the opposition spokesperson on online gambling and now as Minister of Communications, she's got responsibility for the Interactive Gambling Act and the Australian Communications and Media Authority. So there's several issues to take into account here. Now, it's really a case where a donation is made directly to a politician and they know all about it immediately. So they can't immediately refuse the payment if someone makes it. And it's also a case where a politician really refuses to accept any money that's coming their way. But overall, this is all pretty outrageous. A gambling company making a donation to a political party, and Sportsbet does make substantial donations to both the Liberal and the Labor parties as well. And it's not like companies make donations without expecting anything in return, but it's something that does need to stop. And a minister can't suggest, well, I've received $19,000 from a betting company and it's not going to influence my thinking about gambling legislation at all. Of course it will, you know. And I realise that it's not just the minister who has got complete control over the legislation. That's a cabinet decision. But this is just not a good look and it's corruption. That's one problem, but the bigger problem is that there's actually nothing illegal here. There hasn't been any action that is against disclosure legislation. The current reporting threshold is 14500 and both of these donations were made under that amount. So there's nothing to see here as far as the legislation is concerned, but there's a lot to see. And the fact that all of this is legal is a travesty, and these disclosure laws need to change, as well as major reforms to the political donation system. Tony Abbott, a few years back, and I'll get back to hammering the Labor Party in a second, there's a sense in which Tony Abbott was very honest in that he was always open about his corruption. (laughs) And he gave a speech where he was reminiscing about being a young Liberal member and had a meeting with some, he doesn't quite mention who, but it suggested that it was some prominent industry person, and I can't remember the industry. And at the end of the meeting was a bag of cash on the table that was clearly left for him and he wasn't sure what to do. So he went to one of the old party grandees who said, don't worry, Tony, we'll file it through the party and then it's all above board. (laughs) After he made that speech and it was televised, you could hear both the sounds of jaws hitting the floor and foreheads being slapped. 
and my point in this is not to give a gratuitous slap to the Liberal Party as we're driving past, but to say that this is an insidious thing, political donations. It has been used as a, a way to garner interest. The fact that you don't have to declare till $14,500 is incredible. We've seen in the States that uh, George Santos, the limit there is $200, and he's got over definitely more than 200 donations, all at $199.99. And we can add to the top of that gambling. Now, gambling's problematic. There are many, many, many people who who gamble as a form of affordable entertainment, that they watch the horse races or they watch a game or they go down to their local club, play Kino or the poker machines, or they go to the casino and play cards. And you can't really judge that. If it's affordable and it's not creating issues, then that's fine. But we know that gambling is insidious. We know that it costs families millions and millions and millions of dollars every year through problem gambling. And of course, the gambling industry isn't really interested in the light gambler who's there for a bit of fun, gambles what they can afford, wins sometimes, loses sometimes. It's the problematic gamblers, those who can't stop gambling, those who are addicted. And there are thousands of heartbreaking stories of people who are now in jail because they embezzled from their employer, because they mortgaged the house again and again and again until they couldn't afford the repayments. The industry is very powerful. The first thing, of course, to do is to ban the the advertising of gambling, to not normalize it as something you do when you're watching the football. Every second ad is a gambling ad. They promote the odds for various things during the game, and it's treated like a normal thing. And their influence in government is insidious. I think Michelle Rowland needs to resign. Her position as a minister is not tenable, and I'm not sure that her position as a member of the House of Parliament is tenable. You just can't be seen to do this. Most of the big gambling companies are overseas, so the money just floats offshore tax-free, never to be seen again. The industry needs to be better regulated. Advertising needs to go. Full disclosure of payments and income in clubs needs to be bought out. A fairer tax regime for it and no access to politicians except where reasonable. I think we need to go back to fully public funded elections, but at least it's fair and it's open and we know how it is. It's probably biased towards the two big parties at the moment, but we can evolve that so that smaller parties get a fairer go. We've got to get the stench of gambling out. And if the Prime Minister agrees with this, he's either got to sack Michelle Rowland or accept her resignation from the cabinet because it's just not viable anymore. So political donations just ends up being a cat and mouse sort of game where Labor is in office, it tries to reduce the threshold reporting amount. When the coalition is in office, they try to raise the threshold and they do that because it's in their respective interests to do this. And as you mentioned, there have been those calls for Michelle Rowland to resign, not just from her portfolio, but from Parliament itself. And when you look at it, well, maybe she should resign from the portfolio, either that or hand back that donation that she received from Sportsbet. Now, you can't have responsibility for online gambling and then receive donations from an online gambling company. It's just not on. And But the bigger issue for me at the moment is that there is nothing actually illegal here. 
There are no laws to say that a minister can't receive donations that relate to their portfolio. And in this case, it wasn't a situation where the donation was made to Labor Party head office. It went directly to the minister's campaign fund. So there'd be an even greater awareness of the donation being received. And this is a big problem for politics. Now, we had that issue several years ago with Sam Dastyari, where an overseas businessman paid a travel expenses bill for him. It was all within the law and all within disclosure regulations. And there's many issues for the Liberal Party as well, who are always trying to hide where their political donations are coming from. Just recently, there were third-party donations made by Gina Reinhart to the Liberal Party, and that was $24,000 paid to the Sydney Mining Club, which then donated that money to the Liberal Party. And that's from Reinhardt's $28 billion in wealth. So it would be better if she paid some more taxes instead of donating to the Liberal Party or to Donald Trump's re-election campaign in the United States. But that's a separate issue. So there is a lot that needs to be cleared up within political donations. And it should be, but it's just not an area that's getting too much attention from the government at the moment. It's something that it's just got to be cleaned up. Gina Reinhardt should pay more tax. It's really that simple. Remove the influence from people who shouldn't be influential and the system goes a long way to being fixed. Well, I guess the other issue is that there has to be a level of privacy on hmm. political oh, donations sure. because I can understand why people want to support a political cause without revealing sure. their identity, but most donations are not about this. Political donations at this level are about having influence. I'm thinking of, say, a prominent, and I'm not mentioning anyone here, it's just I'm just using an example of a job, but a prominent political journalist, say, who keeps her job very fair and very balanced, but has decided that they want the Greens to do better, say. So they give a very quiet donation on the condition of anonymity because it might compromise their job. It's still problematic, but you can understand. Or even prominent local business people who don't want to get caught up in the grubbiness of politics and, and lose customers because, oh, you, you gave money to candidate X and we've always voted for candidate Y. I do get that some level of anonymity is required and possibly even desirable. Well, there was that Senate committee report on electoral matters from 2011, and that recommended reducing the level of anonymous donations down to $50. And that was never actually acted upon. And, and in most cases, people want to support a party without sure. getting anything in return. But people like Gina Reinhart, when they donate $24,000 to the Liberal Party or if they give a $40,000 celebrity check to Barnaby Joyce, they want something in return. And it's not like they're such benevolent people that they're happy to throw this money around. They want a return on their investment. But the upshot is... If we have a system where political donations are acceptable, and I'd prefer it if we didn't have that sort of system, if we are going to have that, we at least need to know where the money is coming from. Unions donate to the Labor Party, big business donates to the Liberal Party. The Australian Greens had the largest individual donation of $1.6 million from Graham Wood back in 2010. Clive Palmer and over $116 million to the United Australia Party, and that was just for the 2022 federal election. And... There are some simple things that could be introduced. You know, maybe there should be a threshold on the amounts that any individual or entity can donate either in a financial year or during a term of parliament. That disclosure amount should be reduced down to $50, most definitely. And there should be real-time disclosure of all donations received. At the moment, we have to wait until 
July the 1st before all of that information is received, and that could be up to 12 months before we know who was actually donated to a political party. Now, knowing human nature and political behaviour, whatever system you introduce, there's always going to be new inventive ways for political parties to bypass these rules, and there might be unintended consequences where... You might drive the donation system into the underground or onto the dark web, who knows where it would go, but at least it would make it more difficult for political parties to seek external donations and reduce the chances of external players trying to influence key decisions made by government, and I think this would definitely be in the public interest. Yeah. Does the Labor Party have the will to do this? I hope they do, and I hope the Liberal Party has the will to do it but I've been around long enough to suspect that they possibly don't. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.